Thank you, Tyler. Uh, thanks to you for uh, extending the invitation and to Pastor Kevin. And on behalf of the Nunleys, my wife is traveling, and the Hibberts that uh, worship among you all, um, and Evangel University, I want to wish every one of you a Merry Christmas. I put that slide up there intentionally to remind me, not you. Uh, I know you're very well aware that time is ticking and that the number of shopping days keeps reducing day by day, and uh, there's so much to do and so much to plan and so much to cook and so much to buy and on and on, but I want to just chill for about an hour, about 40 minutes, and um, focus on things that are, um, I hope, or that maybe become a little bit more important than all of that to-do uh, list. So speaking of evangel, um, I need students, good ones preferably. <laughs> it, makes, it makes my life easier. But uh, if your kids or your grandchildren or nieces, nephews are considering um, the next uh, step, and that'll be uh, several years in college, um, it is the Wild West out there, as you know. I know you read the papers and you uh, see the news reports and you listen to the radio. And um, college life, especially at large um, state schools, is not the same as it used to be. Um, it's not what we experienced. There's all kinds of stuff there that is problematic. You may know looking at big picture kind of stuff, but I'll just boil it down for, for perspective's sake that uh, post-secondary education, college education, has gone through three major developmental stages in American history. In the beginning, you know, schools like Harvard, Yale, and others were founded by godly people with godly principles and the goal of which was to, to, to educate, to make better educated Christians, uh, folks who were grounded in God's word, rooted in the values of our, our faith and our heritage. And um, so at, at, the, at least at the, at the onset, it was very positively, the, the academy was very positively predisposed toward Christianity. Then we went through a stage that didn't last very long, but the goal was to be content neutral. We're not going to teach values. We're not going to uh, in, instill um, uh, biblical principles and the like. We will be uh, content neutral. We're not anti-Christian. Uh, we're just not going to not be overtly pro-Christian. Very quickly, that led to stage three, and we're now in stage three, and that is very clearly, vir vir virulently anti-Christian um, in, the, in the academy at large. So you might be able to save, shave off a few shekels by going to that um, tech school or that community college or that four-year state-supported uh, uh, college, but uh, there will be a lifetime that has to be lived after that, both in the marketplace, at home, and uh, uh, in the body of Christ that will be um, impacted by that, and you just got to know it. They don't. They're not the same as the ones that you and I, the, the colleges that you and I went to. So if, you're, if your kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews are interested, I want you to encourage them. Come spend two or three days on the campus. We'll put you up. We'll give you a place to sleep. We'll give you food to eat, friends to make, um, ball games and whatever event, events to go to. Also, attending classes. 
and seeing what college is life is like uh, right up front, face to face, interacting with professors before and after class, having discussions with administrators and even uh, students. Uh, what, what is this like? What's the value added to that? Uh, so I encourage you to put that level of um, input, uh, that kind of um, uh, careful decision-making into that decision uh, about uh, post-secondary education. Okay, enough for paid political announcements. Um, uh, I'm sure that the bill is in the mail. That's okay, we'll pay it. But I wanted to talk to you this morning for um, a, 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 few, a short while uh, about the, the one true and only story of the birth of Jesus. Um, yeah, you're looking at me. Okay, so we got four Gospels. Let's see, one plus one plus one plus one equals four. Wait, wait a minute. What in the world is he even talking about? Well, I have a pop quiz for you, and it's totally legal because I'm a professor, and I've got the union card, and I've been doing this a long time. So I don't want to put you on the spot, you know, no guilt tripping or anything, but we've got to get to, uh, we've, got, we've got to do a pop quiz that will guide our discussion forward. So which gospel, which of the gospels actually has no story about the actual birth of Jesus? All right, let's take a look at each one of the gospels individually. Can we do that for a minute? Just kind of a flyover survey Who's doing what about the birth of Jesus? So in the Gospel of Mark, we read the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And in verse 4, bam, we're already to the ministry of John the Baptist. That's Jesus' life and uh, ministry on fast forward, wouldn't you agree? Okay, we're already... He has just covered 30-something years in four verses. And Jesus is now somewhere in the area of 30 years old, probably older than that. But we're already at the, at the ministry of John the Baptist. Then John baptizes Jesus, and boom, we're off into ministry, right? So no birth stories at all in the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four uh, Gospels. True or false? No birth stories. No manger, no angels, no shepherds. Come on, guys. All right, next slide. John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him. I don't know if you noticed, but whatever you ate for breakfast this morning, that's part of God's creation. That's Jesus. He did that. You, that's Jesus. He did that too. The sunrise that you saw... The, the, the road that you traveled on, the, the components of the car you drove, that's, was, that's all part of our physical creation. I'd love for you to take just a second and think about this. The Jesus who was born for you and the Jesus who died for you is also the Jesus that created everything that your eyes will ever see. He is the active, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is the active agent or was the active agent of creation. Step two, just an aside, totally free, won't cost you an extra shekel. In the book of Hebrews, it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he's talking about Jesus. So Hebrews is telling us that not only is Jesus the active agent of creation, he's also the current sustainer of creation as well. He's got a pretty big portfolio. Agree? 
He's got a lot on his plate. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He died for us so that we uh, wouldn't have to die ourselves, died in our place so by his blood we could be cleansed and made right with God. I mean, he's got all kinds of stuff going on. Well, what we hear in, in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. We're hearing about the pre-existence and the eternality of the second person of the Trinity. Please understand, if you need to fine-tune your theology a little bit, it's okay to do that right at Christmas. I think it's really con- contextually appropriate. Make sure that you know that when Jesus became a baby and was laid in a manger, that's not where his life started. We talk about the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Before anything was made, he was chosen, that kind of thing. This is not a Jesus who got his kickstart in Bethlehem in a manger. This is a Jesus who is pre-existent, eternal in his being, a part of the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the active agent of creation. And he is the current sustainer of creation. He is, as Paul would say in Colossians, our all in all. Okay, That's the Jesus that we serve. He is a big, bad, out-of-the-box God. Um, and um, yes, he, has a, he, he got a kind of a, a reboot in Bethlehem, okay? But that's not his beginning. Next. In the Gospel of Matthew, and we've gone through Mark and, and John. We're at the third Gospel, and I'm doing them out of order because Matthew is a little bit more complicated. And, and it does tangentially affect the the Christmas story. So we need to take a look at Matthew's gospel and see what he has to add to uh, to the whole project. Matthew says this, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, we know from Josephus's work, first century Jewish historian who lived in Israel and wrote in the same Greek as the New Testament was written in, Josephus tells us that Herod the Great died in the spring of 4 B.C., So we know that this is sometime more than 2,000 years ago. And we know that what Matthew is saying is after Jesus was born in the days of Herod, he's not really telling us the details of the Jesus birth story. He's also fast-forwarding. You know, like Mark fast-forwarded all the way to the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, and Jesus and John are only six months separated uh, in age. So Jesus is somewhere around age 30 in the Gospel of Mark. Mark fast-forwards 30 years. The question is, how far does Matthew fast-forward? Because he's not telling us about manger. He's not telling us about swaddling clothes. He's not telling us about the actual birth of Jesus. He said, now, after Jesus had been born, then in the days of Herod the king, wise men arrived. And that's another little neat little Uh, kind of tidbit that helps us to dial in on Matthew's chronology. When exactly is Matthew starting his version of the early Jesus story? Well, wise men came from the east. And the east, functional east, is is Tigris-Euphrates, Mesopotamia. It's it's Babylon, Ur, um, etc. Assyria, Babylonia. Today it's Iran, Iraq. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how long does it take to travel by foot from Iran, Iraq, to what is modern-day Israel? And it's not yesterday. 
There's a desert to cross. There's a caravan that you've got to either create or buy into. There's preparations that have to be made because you've got to carry food and water with you. You also have to get permission of Mrs. Wise Men. Yeah? And you've got to get your Google Maps and all of that straight before you go. And so there's some time lapse. What Matthew is telling you, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, he picks up his story with the arrival of the wise men. Wise men are only in Matthew. Shepherds are only in Luke. Next. This is what the wise men ask. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star in the east. So how long did it take for the star to appear? How long did it take for them to see it? How long did it take for them to figure out what the star meant? You see what I'm saying? There's, there are ingredients to the Matthean, the Matthew version of the story, um, that, it, that are telling us that there is lag time between birth and when Matthew picks up his uh, narrative. Is everybody on board with this? Okay, next passage. And I had to throw in a, a, a graphic because you know that there were three wise men. There had to have been because it's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Bible never says three wise men. Three people never traveled alone across the desert. But that's just my nitpicky professorial, totally irrelevant kind of attitude that I bring to the endeavor. But you got the star there, and you got the three guys on camelback, so it's got to be true, right? By the way, they had to have ridden those camels, right? No, camels were beasts of burden. People walked. What about the donkey, though? Because you know Joseph walked and Mary rode on the donkey, right? According to who? Yeah, well, yeah, according to according to Hollyweed, weird, wood. <laughs> Saw what I did with that. Um, I had a lady in Sunday school. She said after we'd gotten through this a number of years ago, she said I, I asked I asked the rhetorical question. All right, besides that, Joseph is a carpenter, not a farmer. Why would he even own a donkey? You know, there is no donkey in anybody's story in the Bible. The donkey shows up in the Protevangelum of James, which is a second century A.D. after the Bible was completed gospel uh, that was written, kind of Christian fiction. And there you first hear about uh, the donkey, where Mary says in chapter 17, Joseph, take me down from this beast, for the child disturbs me. Um, So there you find the donkey for the first time. So this lady in the back of the Sunday school class, she said, I know Joseph must have borrowed the donkey. See what she did? She explained something that didn't exist. Anyway, (laughs) I didn't come to destroy Christmas for you, I promise. There's a good ending to this. Herod sent sent the wise men to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And this is where we get another chronological marker because this word, the child, will never be used in the Gospel of Luke. It's only used in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Greek behind that is paideon, P-A-I-D. It's a variation of P-E-D. We get the the Greek word pedos, which means foot. So we have podiatrist. You hear the sound? Uh, Podiatry. Okay, it has to do with the feet. So Matthew's version has Jesus being described as a paideon. 
The Greek there means one who is moving about by the locomotion of the feet. How, what would, we, how would we translate this in, into English today? Go and make careful search for the, and now you get to be a Bible translator. The toddler, one moving about by the locomotion of the feet. So then Matthew is not talking about the birth of Jesus. He's talking about the early childhood of Jesus, right? That means that we've got to rule him out. He fast-forwarded through the birth narrative. He's on into Jesus' life at age whenever kids start walking. A year for some, hours walked or always walked early, um, maybe a year and a half. But Matthew's not finished, so we got to continue to follow his narrative. Next. And having heard the king, they went in their way, and lo, the star. Remember, that's, this is in our Christmas cantatas and in our songs and stuff like that. Um, and it's part of the biblical narrative. It's not a part of the birth narrative. This is happening a year and a half later that you get wise men and star and travel from the east and all of this stuff. This is a year and a Jesus is already a year and a half old at this point when Matthew's story kicks in. So we, the star that they had seen from the east went before them until it came and stood over the, uh, where the, the child, again in Greek, the paideon, Matthew never mixes his terms. He sticks with this thing. He never refers to Jesus as a newborn or an infant or a suckling or any of those kinds of words like we use to describe a, a, a baby at the point of birth. Yeah? Matthew. He, at least he's consistent with himself. And it's here's an interesting part of the protoevangelium of James. It says that when the star came to rest, that the um, wise men were watering their animals in the uh, uh, well of Bethlehem. They looked into the well and they saw the reflection of the star right over them. That's cool, that, but that's not Bible. Just thought that you might enjoy a little tidbit from the protevangelum of James. Next. I think that this, um, what's motivating this uh, movement of the, the wise men the seeing of the star and the identification of the star as being some kind of a connect point with the birth of a, of a Jewish king um, is Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. This is a prophecy. I behold him, but not near. A star will come forth out of Jacob. Okay. Then there's Hebrew poetic parallelism. You say the same thing, just using different words. A scepter shall rise from Israel. So star and scepter have something to do with one another. Just like Jacob and Israel are in parallel position. And the scepter is a symbol of royalty. King, right, royalty. And so royalty is going to come out of Israel and is going to be represented by the appearance of a star. That's not too difficult math, is it? That means you're a wise man. But that's what they can that's the text that they were looking at. It's the only passage that has anything to do with a star appearing in the whole Bible. And so these guys are looking at the Bible, they're looking at the star, and they're going, hey, these are the same. This is that. And so they act on it. The rabbis 
Josephus as well, first century Jewish historian, they're taking this text and they're interpreting it messianically in terms of the coming of a messianic king. So that's already out there in the interpretation. Wise men are not making this up. All they have to do is take the Bible passage, take the current interpretation, and apply it to the star. Easy math, right? One plus one equals, plus one equals three. They're just lining, lining up the, the evidence. I'm sure you would do the same. Wise men, wise women. Next. In Matthew chapter 11, 2, verse 11, the story continues. They came into the house. Oh, wait a minute. That, that scene change, right? Because in Luke's version, there's a manger there. And we've built a whole um, kind of construct uh, that, well, if there was a manger there, then there were animals. Those animals must have spoken, but only on Christmas night. Um, and they're keeping, whatever they're saying, they're keeping beat to the, the beat that's provided by the little drummer boy who's standing over there in the corner. We've got it all figured out, you see? So um, they came into the house. Well, look, if you're married and you're married to a carpenter, you're not going to stay in any kind of a stable, barn, manger, small animals, storage area for very long. You're going to say, Joseph, get your backsides out there and build me a house. Right? And so if this chronology is correct, and Matthew has been telling us all along, I'm telling you the part of the Jesus story that is occurring a year and a half after the birth. I don't even tell you about the birth. I've quickly referred to it now after Jesus had been born, and then he starts into his story with the wise men. So the wise men walk not into a cave, not into a root cellar, not into some kind of a makeshift barn or stable area, but they're walking into a house. Do you see then how all of the details of the story connect? Maybe they didn't before in our minds because we're confusing Matthew with Luke and Luke with Matthew and all of these guys with the protoevangelium of James and with Hollyweed and everything else, and it all becomes kind of, yeah, it's just sort of this mushy Jesus stuff. But Matthew is very specific. They go into a house because they're not going to be living in a barn or in a cave or in a stable or whatever for a year and a half, and this makes sense out of the story. I think you can even get this in English. The child, the child, the child. When we get to Luke, you'll be able to see, have something that to, to directly compare that with. They went in with Mary, his, uh, to Mary, his mother, and they saw the child, and they fell down and worshipped him. This is the greatest miracle in the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is a true miracle. I could worship a baby, you know, one that's all bound up in swaddling clothes, and they can't move, they can't mess with stuff, can't break anything, you know, can't get into makeup or cleaning liquids or whatever. They're just laying there in the manger. I could worship in a situation like that. It would be really tough for me to run a toddler down, get them to stand still long enough to worship them. No, no, I don't want that. That's mine. You know, kind of toddler sort of stuff. I think this is pretty miraculous. To worship a toddler, go figure. Next. In verse 13, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and a child and said, take, arise and take the Pideon, the toddler, and his mother and flee to Egypt. And there remain until I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the 
paideon. He's consistently using the same Greek word, the toddler. He's going to try to destroy the toddler. Some of you may have had similar thoughts at certain points. (laughs) Maybe you can relate. There's exorcism for that. (laughs) Or maybe grace. Next, in verse 14. And he arose and took the paideon, the toddler, and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt. Mary, Joseph, and toddler Jesus. Year and a half old, maybe almost two-year-old Jesus. I wonder how much of the journey he walked on his own. Never mind. Uh, Next. In verse 16, and this, and, and this really clinches, the, 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 the seals the deal with respect to time, chronology, sequence, and stuff. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he, came, he became enraged and he sent and slew all the male Pideons, all of the male toddlers. And then it says, in Bethlehem and its, and its surrounding area, from two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, what time is that? What marked that time? The star. According to the time of the appearance of the star. Herod is doing the math, probably rounding up to make sure that he gets the right Pideon, the right toddler. And he kills them from two years old and under. Now, you tell me how old was Jesus at the time that this event took place. Somewhere just under? Yes, exactly. So, are we hearing the Christmas story from Matthew? Yes, no, or maybe so? No, we're not. He's passed over the Christmas story and moved on to another version, another, we usually blend it together, another really important part of the early Jesus narrative, but not the actual birth. So then, let let me... Raise the question again. Can we go to the next slide? So which gospel is it that is actually going to tell us the story of the literal birth of Jesus, play by play, moment by moment? Who's doing that? It's not Mark. It's not John. We just found out that after pretty careful study, it's not Matthew. We better hope it's Luke and not the protevangelum of James, right? Okay, next slide. Do you remember um, the, a Charlie Brown Christmas? Charlie is, is so distraught because of the, the crummy little tree that he got that didn't really work out. And all of these other peripheral things that um, people have gotten so wrapped up in all around him. You know, Lucy and, and, and crew. It's Charlie Brown says... Can anybody tell me what Christmas is really all about? And the most um, unsuspecting hero of the story steps forward with banky in hand, Linus, you know, and Linus steps into the spotlight and he tells Charlie Brown, he he answers the story, the the question uh, that Charlie asked, what can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And what does Linus say when he's in the spotlight? He tells the Jesus story according to the gospel of Dr. Luke. Let's take a look at it. You'll remember, you can hear his voice, this cheesy little child, you know, voice in the background. And it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that a census should be taken of the, uh, the, the entire earth. Now, this was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. I think that in the original version line, I skipped that part at the bottom, but that's in Luke. And, and it's an important chronological marker because Luke is all about cross-referencing people's reigns and rules and where they ruled and at what time they ruled and what particular office they held. Luke is the one who is so dialed into that. Read the beginning of chapter 3. If you like this in chapter 2, read the beginning of chapter 3 and you'll go, wow, this guy is all about cross-referencing. He's all about chronology. He's all about the details of history. And that works to our favor because of the level of accuracy, the specific details that Dr. Luke brings into the narrative. So we have found, thank God, finally, four tries, right? We found the actual Christmas story, and it's at the pen of Dr. Luke. Next. All were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. This then means that Joseph and Mary have to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, uh, the city, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David that's called Bethlehem, because Joseph was of the house and family of David. David is from Bethlehem. Next slide. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Well, now you have a problem. If you've been listening carefully, you know that this says child, and Matthew said child, and I said that Luke never, um, and Matthew never mixed their terms. Matthew is always on this year and a half to two-year-old Jesus, and Luke is the one that gives us the actual birth. So you're going, who do I believe? Do I believe the Bible, or do I believe Dr. Nunley? I would prefer that you would believe the Bible, okay? It's just between you, me, and God. But here's the cool thing. I think we can fix this. When it says in your English translations, and others might have a different translation, was with child, the word that is used there is incuos. It's the same word that we get the word incubator from. It's Mary was in a state of pregnancy. She was literally, in the Greek, incubating Jesus in her womb. Okay? Incuos. So this with child is just it's, it's a, it's a, if you uh, saw um, any of the uh, Star Wars stuff, this is just a fluctuation in the, in the force. Okay? This, is, this, this is a minor glitch, a, a, a small technicality of the English language. The problem is not Luke or Matthew. The problem is us. The problem, problem is, at least at this point, the modern English translation that chooses to use the words with child. It actually means that... Mary was engaged to him and was incubating a fetus inside of her. That's literally what the incuos is, is about there. Has, it's totally different from the word paideon. One is still inside, the other one is everywhere. <laughs> okay, next. And it came about while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. He's, he's signaling us, guys. This is telegraphed. I'm going to tell you blow by blow, minute by minute, event by event, the story of the actual birth of Jesus. We are, ladies and gentlemen, at the pen of Luke at Christmas. This is real Christmas. Matthew is Christmas and a half. This is Luke, and he's telling us on the money, you know, play by play. Next. She gave birth, 
See, watch the, the, the textual indicators. She gave birth, firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You can't get a toddler to stand still long enough to wrap them in anything, right? Yeah, that's not what you do. That's not what their culture, our culture, Middle Eastern culture today or whatever does to a toddler. But it's certainly what you do to a newborn and laid him in a manger. Um, my grandson... Uh, Magnus can climb out of his manger. Uh, Jesus could not. A, A, he was wrapped. B, he was too young, had no coordination of the limbs and that kind of thing. He was not in this, in Luke's version, at that developmental stage. And then laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And I don't want to take candy from a baby. That's not my purpose. But the word there, in, is actually, it's kataluma, and it's never used in the New Testament or in the Septuagint. Pastor Kevin, I know, educates his people, so you've heard that word before. It's the Greek trans, ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was originally given in Hebrew. It's not used that way in the Septuagint or any other surrounding Greek literature. Tragedies, plays, poems, histories, or whatever. This word, kataluma, uh, is always guest room. You, I've put a couple of passages up there in the New Testament where Jesus says, go and prepare the Passover in my guest room. And there was an upper room. And you know the, the story of the, of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. That's the word that's used there. So it's not a Motel 6. It's not even a Hilton or Ritz. That's not in view here. Consequently, there's no innkeeper because there's no inn. There's no money that changes hands. Uh, there's no, you know, no vacancy sign. Neon, probably, right, in our imaginations. Swinging in the breeze. None of that. And here's, what's, here's what is happening. We hear about Jesus being rejected. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected among men. Okay? We hear about Jesus being rejected by the Sanhedrin, by the high priest, by the Romans, by many of his... Uh, contemporaries, but that rejection didn't start at the uh, cross. It didn't start at the triumphal entry. It didn't start in, uh, uh, in his arrest or his trials or his crucifixion. It started at the beginning of his life as a human being because what we're seeing here, the guest room, that's a private home. David had family in Bethlehem. He was there because he was family. And so here you see the first rejection by men of this baby Jesus. Maybe it was because of the um, uh, uh, issues related to Joseph and Mary's marital status. Um, maybe it was because they had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and it's a long way, and they traveled by foot. Um, and uh, they maybe got there after most of the family who lived closer had already gathered together, and there was not even a place to roll a pallet out on the floor. The whole house was, was full of family. So you hear this theme of the rejection of Jesus. Uh, Mary and Joseph said, so be it, Lord. We'll carry out your will. Others, An Ananias, um, uh, Anna, um, the parents of Zechariah, John the Baptist, they're accepting, but there are some that will always reject, even family. So this theme of rejection, John talks about it. 
He came unto his own, and his own received him not. You know that, that verse. Right. So that, that's what's behind this. It's not a no vacancy sign. It's not an inn. It's not uh, an innkeeper. It's not about money. Uh, it's about space. And it might have to do with attitude. Huh. That reframes the story just a little bit, doesn't it? Has your Christian witness been rejected by a family member? Then you've experienced that. Don't think that you're the first. Or by a best friend, teammate, um, maybe a coworker. Okay, you, that's this is not the first rodeo for that. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The theme of Jesus' rejection starts not at his death, but it starts at his fill in the blank birth. Exactly. Isn't that incredible. Next. In the same region, there were some shepherds, so locally, not traveling from Babylon, from Mesopotamia, from the Tigris-Euphrates, across deserts and avoiding bandits and getting permission from Mrs. Wiseman. Um, but in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all the people. Okay, so this guy is the choir leader. He shows up first. He's always there before practice starts. You know how this usually looks, don't you? How is this usually pictured on TV? So consequently, because we have the visual image, how does it look in your mind? The angel said to them, do not be afraid. Next slide. For today in, today in the city, there's a chronological marker. Not when Jesus is a, is a, a walking toddler, uh, but rather um, right now in real time. So what you're, what you're watching here on these slides, which if you're following along in your Bible, you're watching a word video. This, this is as close as we get to this uh, birth of Jesus story. And we literally have a word video. Now, let's stop for just a second and see if we can figure out where this came from. Luke is a latecomer to Christianity. We don't hear about him until Acts 16, verse 10. In that passage, he becomes a, a follower of, kind of a disciple of, uh, of Paul, in one of Paul's in his second missionary journey. And um, as such, he gets to spend years and years with Paul. Uh, one of the things that happens is he eventually will make his way to Jerusalem following Paul, but Paul gets arrested in the temple to save him from the Jewish people, the Roman officer, because Paul's a Roman citizen, the, the Roman officer comes down and, and rescues him by uh, arresting him and taking him into custody. For his own safekeeping, he ends up being transferred from Jerusalem, which is in the middle in the hill country, down to the shoreline, Caesarea, which is the Roman capital of, uh, of the land of Israel in the first century. And this is where the procurator lived, the Roman military governor. There, Paul languishes in prison for two plus years. Now, during this time, we're told by the story in the book of Acts that Luke is with him. So what is Luke going to do for two and a half years? Uh, do I need to do a multiple choice on you? A, he sits around and twills his thumbs. B, he learns origami. <laughs> C, he sets up a medical practice to support himself. How about letter D? 
Luke scours the country looking for people who had seen or heard as an eyewitness, not hearsay, but eyewitness testimony of events in the life of Jesus, things that he said and that he did. He probably gets the idea for the Gospel of Luke and then its companion volume, the book of Acts, during this two-year, two-plus-year imprisonment of his mentor in um, Caesarea. Luke's not in prison. Paul is the one who's in prison. So Luke is free to travel all over the country. Let's back the boat up just for a second and, and say, okay, well, this is about the birth of Jesus. Who was there? Can you name the people who were there? You can name them by name. Who were, who were first-hand participants in the birth story? Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Okay, now let's start whittling that down. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Joseph was never mentioned in any of the Gospels after Luke 3 when Jesus is 12. And he's in the temple. Remember the story about them going back toward Nazareth, realizing, hey, he's not with the group, mostly friend, close friends and family members going back to Nazareth. Oh, my goodness. And so they double back to Jerusalem, and Joseph and Mary find Jesus in the temple. Joseph is not mentioned after that, so Joseph is gone. So if Jesus is gone and Joseph is gone, here's the question. Who's telling this story to Luke? It's very simple. Absolutely. You are right in the middle of the Holy Family right now. We've done source criticism. We've looked at who are the possible sources of this information. You're literally hearing the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus, speaking through the pen of Dr. Luke. How cool is that? You can't get a video closer to the event than that. It just, the technology simply didn't exist. So Luke preserves this word video for us, and this is what he's giving us today in the city of David. He's not talking about a year or two later. He's talking about right now on top of the event. Next. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby. Now, if you were reading it closely in your English translations, guys, you would be able to tell the difference between Matthew's child and Luke's baby. They're not exactly the same in English, but it's even better in the original language. Remember we talked about paideon was Matthew's word, right? He only uses the word paideon to refer to Jesus because he's talking about Jesus' developmental stage as a toddler, yes? All right, Luke is just as consistent as Matthew, but he, doesn't, he never uses the word paideon. Instead, he uses another Greek word. He uses the word brephos. That's what lies behind this baby language. It says you will find a brephos. What does brephos mean? Again, in the Septuagint and all of the surrounding Greek literature and stuff, it's really clear that the word brephos means suckling infant. It means a newborn baby that is receiving all its nourishment at the breast of its mother. Very clear. Very specific. And, by the way, fits in perfectly with what Luke, what he's claiming to do. I'm telling you the story of the actual birth of Jesus, that moment of delivery. And he uses the right word. As does Matthew also use the right word when he's talking about Jesus at a next developmental stage. I see that I've, I've got the attention of every mother in here, and all of the guys are thinking about um, who's playing this afternoon 
in NFL football, right? Okay, hang with me, guys. Hey, it, it, what, doesn't make, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or weirder. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby, a, a brephos, a suckling infant, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Does that context fit? Yeah. And lying in a manger, just laying there. Can't do anything but kind of like, okay, right? Poop and cry. And, and you know, that one of the funniest points in Christmas history is the um, passage, the, the part in the song, where it says, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Silent night, right? Yeah, right. Sure. And I have swampland in Florida that I can sell you if you believe that the little G- Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It's the way that babies communicate because they don't speak English or Hebrew. Next. The manger, the, uh, in the previous uh, uh, slide, you'll find the, the brephos, the suckling infant lying in a manger. Um, this is the um, origin of our construct that says, okay, manger comes from the French word manger, which means to eat. We get the word munch, to munch, manger, in a manger. So what's munching in this manger? Well, little animals. But these are portable. They can be carried around. They can be inside, outside. So we come up with stable. We come up with lots of animals hanging around. The oxes are lowing. The poor baby wakes. The cattle are lowing. The cattle are lowing. The poor baby wakes. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Remember the song? Okay. So... There you have, in, with, this manger, with the, the mention of manger, we cre- create a modern barn. We then populate that barn with various types of uh, farm animals. They can speak, but only on Christmas night. You kind of see how we sort of add to the story, yes? And it's fun and it's cool. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's not unhealthy, but... When we're trying to keep our eyes on the prize of God's word, we've got to read his word and not our culture. Question for you. What sets a man or a woman free? Does culture set you free? Culture will bring you into bondage pretty much every time. I got to wear this. I got to have a new that. Um, I got to cut my yard so and so. We need to paint the house because we got to keep up with the Joneses, culture will put you into bondage every time. What does the Word of God do? When you know the truth, the truth sets you free. So there's a a substantive, there is a palpable, a, a, a real difference between following culture and following God's Word. And I just want you to, I want to underline that for you this morning. That's an important takeaway point. For, what the, for the time we've spent together. Would, would you agree? Um, that's important. Keep your eyes on God's Word. Maybe your eyes less so on culture. Next. Oh, I'm sorry. To the, to the, um, to the graphic. All right. So you have the, the worship leader. And then uh, I got this off of um, Google Images 4. And it's all over that. This is just representative. There's always a bunch of angels. They always look like this. Do you see them, how they're lined up in a choir? Can you tell who's singing soprano and who's singing bass? All right. So, and then the altos and the 
um, tenors are somewhere in between. Um, and then you see the petrified angels, or they are just enamored by the incredible vocal ability of this a cappella group. Um, the problem is, is this. Uh, take a look at the, at the passage in Luke. Suddenly there appeared with the angel. Remember it said that the angel said to them, do not fear. And then there appeared a, a multitude of the heavenly host, and they were praising God and saying, what's missing? To touch their harps of gold. What's missing in this? There's no instrumentation. There's no singing. In fact, this fits in really well with what you find in the rest of Scripture. Let's go to the next passage. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But then there's an Isaiah passage, chapter 6. Isaiah's in the temple and he sees a vision of the Lord, high and lifted up. And his train, not choo-choo, but the train of his royal robe was filling the temple. And his train, his royal robe filled the temple. And one of the angels called out to another one and said, you see, angels typically say in the Bible. All the way through the book of, through the book of Revelation, you don't see angels singing. You typically see angels talking. Now, I, I can rescue this for you, I promise. I've done some thinking about this. It's not singing, it is saying, but if we want to have our cake and eat it too, okay, they were rapping. <laughs> kind of splits the difference, right? The foundations and the threshold trembled at the voice of the one who called out, who was speaking, not singing. Next. Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 16. They came in haste and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the Brephos. Just kind of underlining as you go down through this Luke passage, Luke is consistent within himself and he is regularly referring without deviation to a newborn suckling infant. Okay? Um, the baby, as the baby lay in the manger. Matthew is consistent with Matthew. He's telling, talking about a different time period. Luke is consistent with Luke. He's talking about yet another, an earlier time period. Next. So then the conclusion, where do we go to hear the original story of the actual birth, the moment by moment, play by play, event by event, birth of Jesus? Which gospel? Luke, exactly. Boy, you guys are awesome. How about adult education? We could do that. Um. Could we take a moment then and maybe unpack how we got where we are? We have a gospel of Luke because we have a Paul who was obedient. Because he spent two years in prison, we end up with a gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Luke wrote more than anybody else in the whole New Testament when you combine it. Put all of the letters of Paul together, do the number count. Luke and Acts are actually bigger than the entire Pauline corpus or list of the letters of Paul. We get, in other words, we get the, the majority of, from any given author, our New Testament because Paul was willing to be obedient, go back to Jerusalem, allow himself to be arrested, spend two years in prison, and Luke is scouring the country and then we can, now we can talk about Luke. Thank God for Paul's willingness to pay the price 
for us to have Luke and Acts. But now let's talk about Luke. Thank God that God called Luke. Thank God that God saved, that Luke responded and, and, and God saved Luke and met up with Paul. Who would have ever known? What are the possibilities that their paths would cross in Acts 16? It's just astronomical, and yet it happened. Thank God for his guidance of, of human lives. God does call doctors, doesn't he? Doesn't he call nurses and accountants and garbage collectors and mechanics? Doesn't God call each one of us? Or is that something, some kind of special status just for pastors, missionaries, maybe Christian educators? We have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? And we quote this verse all the time, and we apply it to ourselves, and rightly so, because it's intended that way. Romans 8, 28, God can, it, it works all things, is able to work all things to, those, to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So did you know that you're called? You're called to something. I'm not saying you're called to be a pastor. I'm not saying you're called to be a full-time on another foreign field, a missionary. But whatever, whatever calling you have, God's there to walk with you through that, to equip you to be the best whatever it is that he called you to be so that you can then be the best representative of him, the best example to those that are around you, family members, co-workers, etc., <laughs> clients, uh, patients. Uh, uh, and, and that God that calls you is wanting to equip you. Anything he calls you to, I preached this already here at CCC. You can go back and listen to that message. Anything God calls you to, there's a divine enablement to do that that he calls you to do. Start a soup kitchen. Take a new job as an entrepreneur. Start some kind of new business venture or whatever. Whatever God calls you to, he's going to, he, wants to, he wants you to open up and regularly allow him to empower, to fill you and empower you to walk out that calling. He does not call and then say, okay, with your best efforts, with your, best, your, your most creativity, with all of your networking, with your good imagination, with your good looks, your great singing voice, or whatever, you go out there and you get that calling done. Uh-uh. He doesn't work that way. If he did, at the very end, you could total it up and go, oh, cool, I did that. That's on me. Aren't I awesome in this place? No, not really. The glory is supposed to be to him. He'll share it with no other, the Bible says so that no flesh might boast in his presence, all right? And so the whole thing is be open, let him guide you, call you into various things at different points and stages of your life, and then empower you to walk that calling out. And that's the way this thing works. And there's, here's the good news. In that, there is no burnout. There is no frustration there is no discouragement. Even when there's setback, it's, okay, God, I still see that you got the big picture going on, and I'm just going to yield to you. I'm going to allow you to empower, encourage me, and enable me to continue to walk out whatever you put on my plate. It's all about him. It ends up being about him and not about us. The onus, the responsibility ends up on him. All we've got to do is yield. All we've got to do is make ourselves available. 
All we have to do is allow Him to have His way in our lives, including empowering us to be and do what He calls us to be and do. And ladies and gentlemen, that's good news. That is way, way, big time, huge good news. Bad news would be God calls you to turn the other cheek to pray for those who despitefully use you, you know, all that stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what? (laughs) You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, guys, and make that happen. I'm out of here. That would be bad news, and God does not operate that way. All right, so that aside, thank God that that, that Luke had the kind of eye, trained eye, of a, of a physician to look for detail and to deal with matters accurately having to do with chronology and stuff like that. Thank God that he was willing to go the extra mile and travel, literally travel those miles by foot to places like Nazareth and Perea and Bethlehem and other and listen to what people had to say and then to re- accurately record that and then that would eventually become a part of the gospel of Luke. Thank God for that kind of diligence. Can we thank God for that? A guy who gave us the, the biggest part of the New Testament? I think so. Thank God for his choosing of people like that. He knew exactly who to put his hand on. He buttonholed Luke. This is the kind of guy that's going to carry the mail, that's going to deliver the goods, that's going to bring to you what we read and celebrate every Christmas. You know, the gospel according to Linus. Yes? All right, so... Thank God for all of that. But then there's another little bit of work that we got to do. It's classwork. It's not homework. And it won't, it'll only hurt for a moment. Um, Trust me, I'm a doctor. Uh, So um, if we have in the original birth of Jesus story, and we get this from Luke, what happened exactly at that moment? I'm not talking about a year and a half later. By then, Joseph and Mary will have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But at age 40 days in the Gospel of Luke, they offer the poor man's sacrifice, two turtle doves. You know that's true, all right? So let's, let's roll back before the wise men, before the star, before the little drummer boy. I mean, literally, the, the Gospel of Luke um, on the birth of Jesus, we don't have kings visiting Jesus, a year and a half later, okay, maybe they were kings. You know, we three kings of Orient are. I had a group of students come by after their final exams. God bless them. Um, and they were Christmas caroling to professors, you know, the ones that had just afflicted them with the final exams. So I thought that that was really sweet and like Jesus. But anyway, when they got to my door, they had been to a, in a class where I taught synoptic gospels and we dealt with what's in and what's out, what's original and what we've added. And so this, is, this was the Christmas carol that they sang to me. We mm, mm, are. And I went, that's mean. Shut up and go bother somebody else. <laughs> so maybe they were kings, maybe they weren't. But the reality is they were not there at the birth of Jesus. So no kings, no star, no expensive gifts. This comes a year and a half later. There's no innkeeper because, work with me guys, there's no inn to keep. Uh, No choir of singing angels, uh, no stable, not like we have constructed it, you know, the barn with the wood and that kind of thing. Probably a, 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 a naturally occurring cave 
that was be, had a house built over top of it. This is what happens in the Judean hills. And you use that as sort of a multi-purpose room, kind of a storm shelter, kind of a root cellar, sort of an overflow area, kind of a storage um, place. And um, that's where Jesus was born, not in the house up above for a number of reasons that uh, we're not going to go into uh, or have only briefly mentioned. Um, no stable, no animals that could speak just that night, um, and unfortunately, no little drummer boy, because he was my favorite part in the story. He, he was sort of like the unsung hero. You, you didn't root for the little drummer boy? I like the little drummer boy. I, I miss the little drummer boy. So, uh, if there's none of this, these accoutrements... If all of our cultural trappings and overlays are stripped away, well then, I mean, gosh, what's left of Christmas? That's a downer. That's a bummer, right? No, do the math. What's left? Jesus. A God who would, was willing to humble himself because we were having such a difficult time getting to him, he decided he would come to us. He would reveal himself as a human being, walking among us, living life like we had to live, being tired and hungry, being thirsty, being irritated, uh, being a part of a family, um, uh, having disciples that weren't necessarily all that faithful sometimes, and on and on and on. He became one of us and he did it voluntarily. This greatest self-revelation of God. It had been going on since the, the garden, but now what he does instead of pulling the I'm doing Wizard of Oz imagery right now. Instead of just pulling the curtain back a little bit every so often, he pulls the curtain all the way back, and you see him in all of his glory. The spotlight is not on Linus. The spotlight is on Jesus. He is the one who was willing to accept the rejection, and not just at his death, but all the way back, dial that all the way back, that theme all the way back to his birth. He knew it would happen. He had the foreknowledge. He knew that that would be the case, but he did it anyway. Why, did he, why would he be willing to leave unfathomable glory? Why would he be willing to leave a heaven where there is no pain and no tears and no suffering and no loss and no rejection? Why would he leave that to then take on all of those things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Huh? Let's listen to the incarnation in Paul's words. Philippians chapter 2, verse five, verses 5 and following. I don't have it on the slide. Have this attitude or mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who even though he was found in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient even unto death. You see what Paul did? Paul connected incarnation with crucifixion the birth of Jesus with the execution of Jesus. It's not bits and pieces. It's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same plan. This is what we, I, I think we need to be focusing on. It's not about the gifts. 
It's not about the um, accoutrements. It's not about even the Christmas carols, even though I love this time of year and I love to listen to them. It's not about the cantatas. It's not about Hollywood's recreation of the Jesus. It's Jesus himself. He's the centerpiece. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. Have, he says, focusing your attention on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith the originator, the beginner, the founder, the author, uh, the generator of our faith. That's what real Christmas is all about. And fortunately or unfortunately, nothing else. God loved us so much that he, he went through this. No kings... No announcements, no star to mark the birth, and no, um, uh, no presumption, right? No pomp. Just a baby coming into the world just like every one of us did. Unfortunately, his exit was not quite as nice as some of us will, but that was purposeful too. That was him taking our place all part of the same plan, and it starts right here. Guys, that's also good news. That's Christmas. That's a real present. That's a real God that really reaches out to us and loves us enough to go through all of this, everything totally stripped down, just a young mother and a baby in a feeding trough. How cool is that? By the way, that kind of attitude, remember what Paul says, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, okay, that's what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to anything that he hasn't already done, anything that he wouldn't do. My dad taught me a lot of good lessons. One of them is don't ever ask anybody to do something that you're not willing to do. God was willing. For God so loved the world that he gave this only son to go through this with the cross in view because he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. Pulling the curtain all the way back. See, this is me. This is who I really am. That's what he wants of you. He wants that kind of servant dying to self, living like this. So I hope that this Christmas, it'll really mean something to you. More than presents. My God, I sense a spirit moving on you. More than parties. More than carols. More than cantatas. He wants that interaction with you. He's that wide open with you. Will you be that wide open with him? If there are those who have not bowed your knee and made to the lordship of Jesus, I would love to pray with you after the service. That would be so neat. Um, for others, would you just bow your head and let's conclude in prayer? Praise your mighty name, Lord. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, this... We want to thank you for humbling yourself. We want to thank you for coming into 
our world, instead of dragging us kicking and screaming into yours, Lord, you came into ours willingly, intentionally, voluntarily, and without any pomp or circumstance and not expecting any kind of special concessions because you are indeed royalty. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you took on the form of a servant and that you became obedient even unto death. We give you praise, King Jesus, because you are worthy of it. You deserve it. Lord, you earned it the old-fashioned way through death to self and through service, through pouring yourself out through humbling yourself. God, give us that divine empowerment, that desire, and that divine empowerment to follow your example. Uh, Lord, as Jill prayed earlier, help us, those of us who have bowed the knee and made Jesus Lord, help us to live this out in an effective way so that we can share the, this stripped-down, simple message of Christmas. God loves us. Loves us so much that he would voluntarily take this kind of thing on, knowing what was coming all along. Lord, help us to be effective communicators in our lives as well as our words of these realities. And so, Lord, at Christmas time, we give you praise. We give you thanksgiving. We give you honor and glory and laud and majesty because you've deserved, you've earned it and you deserve it. Bless this precious community of believers <clears throat> that has thrown their arms around my family and endured my um, ministry from time to time. Give them the merriest of Christmases. Open their hearts to see and then help them to be conduits so that others see. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, CCC.